Hey Google, find me a quiz to tell me what type of homeschooling mom I am. The Commonplace is a podcast for the new homeschooling mom delighted by the ideals and principles of a classical Charlotte Mason education, but who feels unsure of how to get started on the practical side of nourishing a soul on the good, the true, and the beautiful. I hope you find camaraderie here as we get our bearings in the world of old ideas and old books, of wisdom and virtue, and of the means of grace by which God works in this world through the commonplaces, which includes your home. So, if you're like me, trying to offer your children an education unlike your own, and wondering if you can create an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life of such richness, I'm here to tell you, I think you can. I'm your host, Autumn Kern, and I'm pleased to welcome you to The Commonplace. So the way I usually tell people I learned about classical education is that I stumbled across Dorothy Sayers' essay, The Lost Tools of Learning. It's a respectable start to my story. But what I don't usually tell people is how I found that essay. I googled quiz to find out what type of homeschooling mom you are. No, really. I did. It was one of those late nights when I had probably 22 tabs open on my computer and I felt so overwhelmed by the many options in the homeschooling world. So I figured there was probably a quiz somewhere on the internet. And I was right. It does exist. Now, I'm not telling you to go take it, but I am telling you that's how I discovered my top score was a classical educator. And my second top score was a Charlotte Mason educator. And I didn't really score on anything else. So when I started to Google, I just looked at those two. And it seemed to me like they were, in fact, two options. Two different methods of homeschooling. Two different ideas. And I'm guessing some of you also think they're two different things. Which is why when I wrote out the podcast show intro, I purposely used the phrase a classical Charlotte Mason education. I didn't want the classical mom or the Charlotte Mason mom to pop over the podcast thinking I wasn't talking to her. Because yes, hello, I'm talking to you. On your first Google search, it may seem like these are two wildly different ideas, but they're actually not. And I'm willing to argue that a Charlotte Mason education is a classical education. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So leave behind those Google quizzes and come along with me. Now, to get the root of an education method, you have to look beyond the why of education. Why do we educate? To teach a child. Yes, duh, of course. But what you really need to look at is the what and how. You see, all education methods have a working anthropology, which is just a really fancy way of asking, what is a person and how do they learn? These two questions are very intertwined. And if you're a mom, you already know this. You have a working anthropology just at home. It comes out in things like, how do you speak to your child or how do you answer their questions? Are you didactic or do you invite them into the big idea? Do you welcome them as children in your home or do you treat them like they are really bad short adults? We're constantly answering these questions in motherhood and just like mothers answer these things differently, so do education methods. But classical and Charlotte Mason methods answer these questions in similar ways. When you dig down a little bit, you see they have the same answer to the what and how about education. Of course, they work themselves out in different ways, but it's like any other living principle. They're born from absolute truths, and the ways in which they're worked out, well, they allow for personality and preference and even a little bit of whimsy. I think Charlotte Mason clearly articulated the heartbeat of a classical education in a way that no other educator has. She had a way of understanding a natural law or a biblical principle and then bringing it into every part of teaching children. She could take a big idea like something from Plato and make it really practical for the mom at home. So let's look at how she explained the what and the how. 
Her first principle is children are born persons. It means they're whole. They have a soul, a mind, and a body. That's what they are. And a soul feeds on living ideas. That's how they learn. It's a law of education. Children are born persons, and they are understandable laws for how they learn. It sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? But these two statements really shake things up. You see, the modern man has been set on separating facts from their living ideas pretty much since Descartes in the name of efficiency and progress. Even now, we can see the efficiency language of computers seeping into the education world because children are being talked about like they're machines. What is the measurable output? What is the score of the statistic? How do we produce something utilitarian? What purpose will this serve? Why do you go to school? To get a job, to fill a need in the system. To treat a person as a machine is to reduce the person from a born person with a mind down to a brain that just needs those handy facts. That's not a high view of man, and it certainly doesn't respect the image of God in each child or the way a person learns. It also has really terrible consequences. It starves the soul of what it needs. Let's apply this to plants, okay? You could say that your plant will serve its purpose and produce what you need if you put it in a dark place in a bucket of chocolate. You have that option. But the what and how of plant life are set in the laws of nature. A plant needs sunlight and water and good soil. Chocolate is going to starve it, and a child is the same way. There are principles of education that you can ignore if you want to, but the truth still stands. A child needs living ideas to grow into what they're supposed to be. And born persons are made in the image of God, so they're made to become like an image. The classical tradition has called this the ideal type. Now, if you go all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, they got pretty close to this idea, but they didn't make it all the way. You see, they understood the need for just life and a good life to be one of virtue. They knew you couldn't chase whatever whim you had or what you thought might make you happy, but instead you had to order yourself to an objective standard that existed outside of you. It was outside of your own wants. So in that sense, they were really close, but they didn't make it all the way. It was the Christian classical educators who were able to connect that final piece. They were able to say that Christ is the ideal type. He is the Logos, which is just a way to say the unifying principle of all things. It means that it's the thing that holds all things together in harmony and wholeness. Jesus is the embodiment of virtue, of all truth, goodness, and beauty, the only perfect man who met the standard, and the only one to help us grow in that image. So when you think about what an education is supposed to form you towards, or what it's supposed to make you like, we can look at Jesus and say, this is what you need to be. He's also a key to how we learn. Jesus was the word made flesh, and both the classical tradition and a Charlotte Mason education rely heavily on literature. One of my favorite quotes is from Sarah Clarkson, and she says, words make worlds. As image bearers, we need story. It's something God wrote into us and what we've been written into. We were made ultimately for the living idea of God's story, and that's why a soul needs living ideas in education. But what does this look like? How do facts and living ideas work? I ran into what I think is a helpful example over here in my house. We have family rules that we jokingly call the commandments. Each one is learned alongside the scripture that supports it, but we usually just say the rule to get the basic point across. One I say a lot is colonels don't have pity parties because, another family rule, colonels are on God's team. It's really easy for me to quip the pity party rule off to a child. You can see a pity party coming a mile away. It's the fact or the instruction within the larger idea. It's needed, but it doesn't do anything to capture my kids' imaginations on the why behind the pity party which means I might get obedience, but I'm not necessarily getting hearts that turn from pity parties. And I want their hearts to love what's good. So it happened accidentally one day when instead of saying the pity party rule, I looked at one of my kids and I said, you are acting very used to scrubby. That particular child stopped in their tracks and stared at me. I realized I had sparked the moral imagination. 
If you don't know, Eustace Scrub is the cousin of the Pevensies in the Chronicles of Narnia. He debuts in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and he is a rotten little fella. He whines, he's selfish, he studies only facts, and he's terrible at adventures because he lacks an imagination. He is, in every respect, a shadow of a true boy. It isn't until later when his dragony heart causes him to turn into an actual dragon, Aslan changes him into a proper boy who loves goodness. But before that, he's terrible, and my kids know it. Eustace Scrub is a living idea. He's an embodiment of vice, and he is the king of the pity party. And of course, no one wants to be like a scrub. Especially not at my house. My kids fight battles for Aslan and Narnia all day, every day. To say they've been impacted by Lewis's stories is an understatement. These colonels have been formed by Narnia. They want to be like Peter or Lucy or Reepicheep. And they want it with all of their little hearts, but they do not want to be like Eustace Scrub. Don't have a pity party is something they need to know, but it's the living idea of a selfish boy who became a dragon that's turned their souls towards truly wanting to be what's good. That's the power of story. And that's why the classical tradition and Charlotte Mason are so picky about the books chosen for students. You can't just pick up anything and offer it to a child. You need to find the best idea because you're shaping and showing a child what they should be aiming for and what they love and how they think and what they do. And actually, we should go there. The idea of choosing the best for what you share with your children from books and ideas. Charlotte Mason thought that repeated truths by many people had the mark of authenticity, and a lot of what she pulled from came out of the great conversation of the classical tradition. We read old books and think about old ideas because there's wisdom to be shared. People have always been building on the thoughts before them and just trying to make them better. I think it was Aquinas that said grace does not destroy nature but perfects it meaning grace continues to reveal truth. Someone fact check me on that quote. I'm actually off my notes now. But anyway, the point is that looking back was how we learned for most of history. And that I think requires a little history lesson because I just can't help myself. Before the enlightenment, people moved very slowly into the future. My favorite way of understanding this has been the idea that people walked backwards into the future because they were facing the past. Looking back was how you learned about God and human nature. And that was your best indicator of what would happen in the future. After the Enlightenment, there was only the future to look towards, and the future was bright. It was without sin, without barriers. You could just look inside your own little precious heart and aim for whatever you wanted. That was the beauty of the future. Even way back then, Disney's watered-down existentialism was already pumping. It was just a small hop, skip, and a jump to the things we hear today. I think you know what I mean. The you-do-you, follow-your-heart, chase-your-dreams-you-are-your-own-hero. Or as that Queen Elsa so poetically said about herself, you are the one I've been waiting for all of my life. <clears throat> Guys, when I heard that, that was the exact moment Elsa was banned from my house. Because born persons were not made to look for virtue and wisdom within themselves or to be fed dead ideas. We were made to look out to God and his truth and your ordinary, dare I say, commonplace education must be built around that. This is how we learn, and this is how we're formed. Charlotte Mason and the classical tradition believe that God has made his world make sense, and we can make sense of it. That's where these principles of education come from, from God's revelation about himself and his world. So you can, and I'd even say have a Christian duty, to teach your children in a way that honors and respects them as born persons. If we're going to feed the soul and train the mind and teach how to live it all out, we need to remember the what and the how. Children are born persons with souls and souls need living ideas to grow. These are the foundational elements of a classical Charlotte Mason education. 
I think Miss Mason was the best mouthpiece for classical education. She saw the heartbeat of the tradition and she made it accessible to every child. So from here on out, I'm not going to say classical Charlotte Mason education. It's a real mouthful for me and probably a real earful for you. But please don't think I'm drawing a line between the two like my Google quiz did to me. We're all aiming in the same direction with the same foundational principles. And like any good thing, we're going to work it out in various ways. Now, I'll be back in two weeks and we're going to talk about how a soul grows up. What does it look like in the early years to feed your children living ideas through your home's atmosphere and habits? And why is it that your kids and mine love repetition and memorizing things so much? I hope you'll join me here at The Commonplace. Place.